So uh, in, in earlier classes, that we, we talked about the fact that we've all sinned. We deserve eternal, eternal punishment uh, from God. And yet in obedience to dying on the cross, Christ accomplished the redemption of his people. He earned salvation for them. So those things that we've looked at. Well, today we look at the way that God applies that salvation to individual lives. So, so this is why in the next two weeks we will see how in earnest that salvation is deed of the Lord. Um, and not only at the point of what Christ accomplished on the cross, but also the point of the application of that to, to our lives as well. So the benefits of the cross as applied to, to you and I, as well as to individuals. So to, to do that, the Bible speaks uh, of salvation in a really interesting way. Um, it speaks not as simply as a, a simple individual act, but the scriptures speak of salvation as comprising of a series of acts or of a process as well. So, for example, the scripture speaks of salvation in past, present, and future tense. So Christians, for example, have been saved, they're being saved. We see this kind of language in the New Testament. And will ultimately completely be saved someday when the, from the consequences of sin. So we call this sometimes a glorification. So given that kind of application of redemption, it's, it's not a simultaneous action, I got saved experience, but rather the scriptures reveal to us that the, the, a series of acts or processes, we shouldn't be surprised to find that um, certain distinct order and arrangement of those actions or processes or those steps in scripture. And probably the central um, verse or the, the um, kind of the classic text to this to show us sort of these steps, sometimes referred to as the golden chain uh, verse, is the one that we find in Romans chapter 8. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, I would strongly suggest, if you never meditated on this on these verses very much, I'd suggest take a look at this if you, if you have the opportunity to do that. So this is Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. Once again, this is sometimes referred to as the golden chain, the golden chain. And the reason it is, is because there's a linkage here between, um, bet between this process or between these ideas, okay? So Paul says in, in Romans 8, 29 through 30, for example, this, that, for those that God foreknew, by the way, just to stop here for a second, sometimes it's a good point to come to this and to make a distinction here. Uh, the fact that foreknowledge or foreknowing is not the same as a foresight. Sometimes we use those terms interchangeably. Um, Paul doesn't say foresight here. He's talking about foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of God. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, and there's that heavy word, right? To be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, well, he also called. So we got, pre, we got foreknew, we got predestined, we got uh, called. And those whom he called, well, he also justified. And here's the, we get the doctrine of justification. And those whom he justified, well, he also glorified. So this is this golden chain that, that theologians talk about oftentimes as well. So we see from that predestination, for example, precedes, comes before calling, which precedes justification, which in turn precedes glorification. So we'll get into more of this, these terms as we get into this, these next two weeks, what some of these terms uh, actually mean. So this makes sense, doesn't it, that, that God could not, for example, glorify a sinner that had not been justified first. So there's sort of this logical order of application here that comes out of, that comes out of this, this, uh, this passage. This is sometimes referred to, you see this on your handout, sometimes is referred to the order of salvation or the ordo salutis, right? Uh, this is the order of salvation. Um, and so this is what we'll be looking at the next two weeks. And I, I apologize, I should have sort of put these on the handout, it'd been helpful. But just sort of to kind of go through really quick, what is this order of salvation that we're talking about? So kind of one through 10. So number one, we talk about this, this doctrine of election and predestination. Okay, so God's election, God's choice of people to be saved. 
I know that becomes a controversial doctrine in church history. Number two, the gospel call. So this proclaiming and this hearing of the gospel, this gospel message. Um, number three is regeneration, or we would uh, sometimes use the term to being reborn or born, as Jesus says, to be born again, passage from Nicodemus. Number four is conversion. So this issue of faith and repentance, this two sides of the same coin of conversion. Uh, number five is justification, right? So this is uh, the, legal, the, the legal standing, our right legal standing before God, or a declaration of um, a right standing before God, based on the righteousness of Christ and his imputed righteousness uh, to us. So those are things we'll look at this week. Election, gospel call, regeneration, conversion, justification. These are huge doctrinal topics, I know. Once again, I would encourage you to go to um, some of these resources. Next week, we'll look at, for example, number six, adoption. So members in God's family, membership in God's family. Seven, sanctification. So this growth that we see wrought by the Holy Spirit. We talked about that. Uh, eight, perseverance, that we continue in the faith. Um, that would be something we want to look at. Uh, till up to the point of death which is number nine, where we go to be with the Lord. And then 10, this term that Paul mentions here as well, is glorification, that receiving this resurrected body. Okay, So that's kind of a huge overview of what we'll be looking at um, for, for the upcoming weeks. So we, we should note from some of the aspects of this order that, once again, that's entirely uh, a divine act. Um, so. That's part of what we've connected with, hopefully from last week, of the work of the Holy Spirit. And yet, we've talked about that work as well. There are other parts of this, of this, um, of these things that also entail human activity as well. Our working, so we can never work to earn our justification. And yet, there is this working that we saw last week uh, as part of our carrying out our own sanctification, right? And yet, as God's working through us. So those are some of the things we want to look at today. Once again, kind of an overview of things that we'll be looking at. You can see us from the handout. So election, gospel call, regeneration, conversion, justification. Okay, Those are things we want to look at. So first, the doctrine of perhaps all doctrines in some sense is the doctrine of election, doctrine of predestination. And sometimes those, are ter those terms are used um, as synonyms, and there is a distinction, I, I think, made between them. Um, I, before we say anything about this doctrine, um, I've, uh, one theologian I thought made a really good comment about it because it, it has elicited so much emotion. So you can't, be, you can't talk about theology very much without getting into the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination. And I've had more of my share of conversations about, these, about this doctrine as well. But as one pastor theologian pointed out, this doctrine, doctrine of election, is a doctrine that's one that should, should not be yielded like a sword or a club to beat people over the head with, but rather it should be seen as a soft pillow <laughs> to sort of rest, um, to rest in comfort. So I don't know if you've ever thought about that doctrine this way. I don't know if you've ever thought about this doctrine before, but it's worth definitely worth consideration because it's a biblical word of predestination and election, and we need to deal. Everyone has... Everyone has a doctrine of predestination and election. The question is, do we have a biblical view of that? And that's what we really want to land on as well. You can't get to this doctrine without thinking of some theologians in church history. And one of them is most certainly is Martin Luther, who probably taught more about this doctrine than anyone else of the, any of the reformers, even though probably Calvin gets more of a, of a rap for this. But Luther probably taught more on this doctrine than any any other uh, outside of Augustine, uh, um, any of the reformers. And Luther said this, and granted, Luther is given to hyperbole, exaggeration a lot of times. If you've ever read anything of Luther, he likes to, he, he runs to hyperbole sometimes. But I don't think he's, a, I don't think he's being hyperbolic here when he says this about this doctrine. So Luther says that the doctrine of predestination and election is the core ecclesium. And that's translated to mean it's the heart of the church. So Luther said that this doctrine is the heart of the church. 
So what does he mean by that? It's the heart of the church. Well, without this doctrine, there is essentially no gospel and no gospel, no church. So he holds this as, as a core central tenet. Okay, so with that in mind, so what do we mean when we talk about this issue of election, right, and, and, and predestination? So as we said before, salvation begins with God, right? Salvation is of the Lord. And so if we kind of run to some definitions of what we mean by these terms, so election, for example, could be defined as an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, on a, not on account of any foreseen, there's that word, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. And automatically with that definition, we get all kinds of questions. And I'll try to take on or look through some of those objections as well. But in other words here, God chose a specific and definite number of people to save. And he guaranteed their salvation through the cross and granted the benefits of Christ's atonement uh, to their lives. So if you think about it this way, if left to himself, if left to myself, um, man would, I would remain forever in my sin. And I know that because not just experientially, I know that from the authority of the scriptures. And this is where we always want to come back to is the authority of scripture. Um, and the scriptures are really clear in this. So for example, Paul writes in Romans 3 that there's no one who is righteous, not even one. So that's condemning in itself, right? There's no one who understands. And then this third part that Paul adds to this as well, that, that not only do we, we're not righteous and no one understands, uh, but no one seeks after God as well. So with that, if you think about it, nothing but a mighty supernatural act on the part of God to rescue sinners is in this um, condition, right? Um, if they're to be rescued, if I'm to be rescued, if you're to be rescued, God must take the initiative. And this is precisely what we see God do, him working this out, that he sovereignly works uh, in man. And in particular, right, picks a man up out of the kingdom of Satan and places him in the kingdom of Christ. Paul puts it this way, that we're either, we're slaves. We're, we're slaves either way. We're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to Christ. Right? So such are the elect that are referred to, and referred to not just once, but referred to um, to some 25 times in the New Testament, right? This issue of the elect, right? So the doctrine of election or predestination is sometimes called, uh, which is as it's sometimes called by the apostles, is clearly laid out in Scripture. And we'll take a look at some of those passages as well. Um, so once again, sometimes we refer to election and predestination as sort of synonyms. And I'm, I think that we can make a distinction in that, although they are closely related. And I won't get into all the, all the, all the, the technical parts of those definitions. But nonetheless, we're kind of using that uh, for this morning in, in that way of election and predestination. Okay. So where does the scriptures really lay this out? And so we see a lot of passages um, that that lay this out for us, this doctrine for us, right? So in reference to Paul, for example, to, in reference to Paul and Barnabas preaching um, to the Gentiles at Antioch, for example, Luke writes in the book of Acts, this is Acts 13, that when the Gentiles heard this message, heard this gospel, that they were glad and honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So with that passage, we see here that the elect of God are the ones who believe um, this gospel, right? So go to another really famous passage. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Ephesians 1. And Paul writes here to the church at Ephesus, he says, For he, God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
And then this word we oftentimes don't want to connect to the doctrine of predestination, but you can't get away from it because Paul will always connect. He will connect this for us as well. Paul says, in love, in love, he, God, predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So, friends, this is why sometimes we refer to this as electing love, right? Once again, this goes back to that statement I made a few minutes ago by one pastor theologian, that this is a doctrine not to be um, yielded like a club, but it's one to actually to be seen as a pillow uh, that we can rest in because of God's love in that. And I get it. We'll look at, once again, some of these objections that you often hear, like, how can this be loving, right? So we'll take a look at that in a second. But just to push this a little bit further, uh, some other passages where, where Paul will, will hone in on this. So, for example, Paul writing in First Thessalonians chapter 1. So this is verses 4 through 5. Once again, I would encourage you to go back and look at these verses. Where Paul writes to the, to, um, to the Thessalonians and he says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. And how do we know that? Because our gospel, he says, came to you not simply with words, but also with power. And here we go. With the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. So Paul here knows that these Thessalonian Christians are God's elect. Why? Well, because they have faith and they've received the message. So the implication, of course, is that God's electing love, that word, right, must be directed toward an individual before a response of saving faith is possible. I'm going to say that again. I think that's pretty important that God's electing love must be directed toward an individual before a response of saving faith is possible. Once again, we'll define saving faith in a second. So writing to some of the, um, to the same church, Paul later goes on to write this, this, this point as well. He says, but we, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. So Paul's like really clear on this, right? <laughs> that God's choice of giving certain individual salvation rests solely on God's sovereign will. Sometimes we refer to this as an unconditional election, meaning that his choice to save a particular sinner like me or like you was not based on any foreseen response or obedience on your part or my part, such as my faith or repentance. On the contrary, Paul's making it clear that God gives faith and repentance to each individual person or to each individual whom he chose in Christ. We know that Paul later on talks about this idea that this faith is actually a gift, right? And that these acts, faith and repentance, are the result, not the cause, of God's choosing or God's election. So, if you think about it, therefore, election was not determined by or conditioned upon any sort of virtuous act on my part or foreseen action on my part. So you never see, you'll never find in the scriptures or the scriptures say that our faith is our faith is the reason that God chose us, right? That salvation is by grace. Um, so a, a really, I think a helpful example, and there's there's all kinds of examples, but Colton actually gave this when he talked um, um, through the Christology, the the person and the particular work of Christ, and and Colton ran to the example, historical example of. Um, Sometimes we want to make this kind of 50-50. Well, if I'll do my part, God will do his part. So we give, we, you know, you hear these examples sometimes being referenced that, you know, um, it's like being floating out in the ocean somewhere and God throws a life preserver out to you. And all you have to do is reach out and grab the life preserver and you'll be saved, right? So he's provide every means uh, for you to be saved. Or you're, you're dying, um, you're, on a, you're on your deathbed, and you're on your last breath, and 
someone comes in and has the medicine that will be the cure for you and will put the spoon right up to your lip and all you have to do is to take this medicine um, and you'll, you'll be healed, right? You'll be, you'll be saved from this, this deadly disease, right? So those are things that you hear sometimes. And yet the scriptures, if you take the application here, what Paul's saying and apply it to those two analogies, that's not what Paul's saying here. So if we take those two analogies and turn them on the way Paul's talking about it, it would be like this. It's not the fact that we are drowning and we have the life preserver thrown out to us. Rather, it's the fact that we are at the bottom of the ocean and that we have our, we're drowned. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. And it is the gracious work of the Lord that pulls us from the bottom of the ocean and breathes life, resuscitates us, breathes life into us. Or the fact that we're not just on our deathbed waiting to receive this medicine, but that we're actually already dead. And in this case, much like um, Lazarus, when Jesus calls him forth, he doesn't ask Lazarus for permission to do this, but he calls him forth from the dead. So in that, we see that there is this God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ. And that's the ultimate cause of salvation, right? Now, I know historically that's been seen in two different lights, and I, I get that totally. We'll, once again, we'll look at a couple of those objections in just a second. But this is not just the fact of uh, we've seen this in the New Testament. But we also see, obviously, examples of this all through Scripture as well. So, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, the reason why God sovereignly elected Israel to be his chosen people is actually given to us, right? And it's given us pretty, pretty clearly um, where it says that the Lord did not set his affection on you, meaning Israel, because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you. So once again, God's purpose and election is not based on Israel, but once again, on God, right? Back to this idea of his loving election, right? He's setting his love and affection. So in the New Testament, we see this explained probably nowhere more clearly, this doctrine of election. And I've mentioned some passages in Ephesians and Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians. But if you've thought any about this doctrine at all, you know the kind of locus classicus text that people go to when they talk about this doctrine in the New Testament, and that is Romans uh, chapter 9 particularly verses 10 through 16, okay? So Paul says this in, in this passage in Romans 9, uh, where he says, Rebecca's children had one and the same father. <clears throat> Paul goes all the way back to the Old Testament, right? And he uses two brothers, not just two brothers, but two twin brothers, right? To, to, to exemplify this doctrine. So he says, Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our, our father Isaac. And yet, before the twins were born or had done anything bad or good, good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob, uh, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, this is God talking, right? Um, what shall we say then? And this is Paul going on to talk about this. Right? What shall we say then to something like this? Is God unjust? Paul's working through this. How can God say this? Is he unjust to say this? And then Paul answers that question. Not at all. And you get different translations on his answer. May it never be. God forbid, right? Paul says to this. And then he goes on to say, he says, for he says to Moses, for God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort. But Paul says, but on God's mercy. Right? So go back to this for a second. God says, Esau I hated. And that sounds kind of harsh preps to our ears. I don't know how that kind of hits you. And it may sound even unfair, right? Like, why would he hate one or love the other, right? 
But when we ask the question that Paul asked, once again, he buries a question in this passage, is it unjust of God to do this? Then we, we I think, have to answer the same thing. We hopefully answer the same thing that, that Paul answers this. And the answer to this is, well, no, it's not at all unfair. It's not all unjust of God. God could have rightly said, if you think about this, <clears throat> God could have rightly said that I hate both Esau and Jacob. And if you look actually at Jacob's life in the Old Testament book of Genesis, especially the early years of Jacob's life, you'll see that his behavior is, is detestable. It's treacherous. He's a, li- he's a schemer. He's a liar. And the difficult question here, I think, because I've been asked this question, and I suspect maybe if you thought about this, you've either asked the question or been asked this question as well. The same thing that Paul's dealing, dealing with here. The difficult question here is not how can God hate Esau, but rather, I think, how could he justly love Jacob, who is a sinner? And the real mystery here in this text isn't why would God save some? But friends, I think the real mystery here is why would God save anybody? Because he doesn't have to do that. Why would he save us at all? If we press into the doctrine of sin, which is connected obviously to the doctrine of man, that we are in a fallen state, that we are rebelling and in rebellion against God, and that we deserve um, eternal damnation. And yet God in his love and his mercy ordained to save some. The question is, why would he do that? Because he doesn't have to do that. Well, I think it goes back to this issue of his love and his mercy. And I think that gets lost sometimes when we talk about this doctrine because we get so impassioned and so heated that we oftentimes lose the fact that this doctrine is, once again, a soft pillow. And what I mean by that, it's not a soft meaning it's easy to understand, but it should be soft in the sense of comfort because it's based on, it's foundationally based on God's love and his mercy. Friends, we want mercy. We don't want what we deserve, which would be justice. And I think that's a good thing to think about as we work through this, right? The difference between mercy and justice. We don't want fairness. If we get fairness, what we deserve, we'll get justice. Instead, I think we want mercy. And yet we can't demand mercy, right? Because if you demand mercy, well, that's not mercy anymore. That's not grace. So to think of it in those kind of two terms, I think is, is uh, it's helpful for me to kind of think of it that way as well, right? But notice also in this passage that God's purpose in election is being worked out even before Jacob and Esau are born. I think that's also something to, to consider here as well. Before they had done anything, Paul says, good or bad. So God's election was not conditioned in the sense on their actions, but on God's sovereign will. And in that, God will receive glory for for his salvation that he gives. Well, certainly. Now, if you're like me, you may be sitting there, at least, friends, I struggle with this. If, If you're struggling with this doctrine, you're in good company because a big portion of my life, I struggle with this doctrine too. Um, And I had the same objections that a lot of people now raise to me as I teach this doctrine as well, particularly in a class classroom setting where I I work. And I've had this question, not just by students, but I've had these objections raised to me by colleagues that I work with as well. Friends, you may have some of these similar objections as well. And once again, I think wherever you kind of fall in this camp, and there's different camps obviously to this doctrine, is to show um, to show some some grace and some um, willingness to listen on both sides, right? Because there's some there's some notable objections from both sides um, of the camp. When I say two sides of the camp, um, I mean that in the sense of um, sometimes re- people refer to this doctrine the way I'm describing here is the Augustinian view, named after Augustine, uh, and others see the other side of the camp. Um, be in sort of the what's called the semi-Pelagian view. Once again, those are two kind of technical terms. I'm not getting into that today. But I would like to talk <clears throat> about a couple of objections that people raise to this doctrine of election or predestination, as, as Paul has laid out here. So one objection to the doctrine of, of election um, 
is that it's often voiced that election means that unbelievers never really have a chance to believe, right? So this is oftentimes connected to the issue of the freedom of the will. So that's why I would really encourage you to read, um, suggest reading um, Willing to Believe, which handles this doctrine about as well as any book that I've read on that. But um, the, the Bible doesn't support this objection, however. So when people reject Jesus, he always puts the blame, if you notice this in the New Testament, <clears throat> on their willful, willful choice uh, to reject him. Not on anything decreed by God. Right? God's not making you not believe, for example. So John chapter 5. John, the Gospel of John, is replete with these examples, right? So John 5, 40, for, for instance, Jesus says that you, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So this is consistent with the pattern that we see in Scripture, that people who remain in unbelief, well, they do so because they are unwilling to come to God. And the blame for that unbelief always lies with the unbeliever never with God. God's not creating fresh unbelief in their heart. This is the product of the fall, right? That we, once again, um, we're not seeking God. We're actually in rebellion against him, Paul says. Paul actually goes further and says that we're actually enemies with God, that we hate God and our unregenerate state, right? So we'll get into a few more objections in a bit, but just to consider this, how then are we to apply? This is a really kind of, it's, a, it's an emotional doctrine. It can be a heady one as well, but just in a practical sense, how in the world are we to apply the doctrine of election to our everyday lives? Like how does this, does this have any, any, any meaning for my life on an everyday basis? Like how can this be the core of the church? Like why is this so important as Luther said? Um, and what does it mean to us practically for our, in, in terms of our salvation? Well, once again, just as a reminder, I keep, want to come, keep coming back to this. But this doctrine, actually, the doctrine of election, is, should be <clears throat> a source of comfort. Right? So Romans 8, for example, shows that God always acts for the good of those whom he has called. So it should be a source of comfort for us. Friends, it also should be one, this doctrine should be one of humility as well. It should humble you. Um, it, I, I mentioned to you a few minutes ago that uh, R.C.'s book on Chosen by God, um, when I first read that book, which deals with this doctrine, <clears throat> I have to tell you, in all honesty, um, I stopped reading that book about halfway through it, and I, it physically shook me. Um, and then I picked it up again, and I reread it. Actually, I read it three times through. Uh, and I found that what shook me was my own pride, that I thought I had done something. Friends, I have done nothing that would earn God's favor. And I suspect if we press one another on that issue in our own lives, we would all admit that too. It's a deeply humbling doctrine. It's also a doctrine that, that um, I think, at least it should, um, generate a thankful heart as well. And the reason is that, once again, salvation is not found in us, but rather is found in God. And that makes also for another point of application before we do some Q&A on this. um, It makes makes evangelism hopeful as well. So one of the objections that you'll see and hear sometimes the doctrine of election is, well, if God's elected and he's predestined, people to salvation. They're like, what's the point of going, what's the point of evangelism? Like, why go tell the gospel? And Paul, once again, answers that question in that this doctrine actually guarantees, we can't guarantee it, but he guarantees that the work, that the word will go out and that people, this is the means of which that the Lord draws his chosen to himself is through the gospel. And you and I have been mandated as Christians to go tell this good news. This is the means of which that God has um, allowed us to share in this, um, to go tell this good news, right? Um, So it is this, it actually brings hope uh, to our evangelism, that God's word will accomplish what it is set out to do. 
and we can't um, we can't know who is elect and who's not elect. That's not our job. Um, our job is to be faithful to the gospel. Once I made the statement last week, and I'll come back to it again this week, um, when we talked about the work of the Spirit. Friends, I can hold a knife to your throat and make you a sufficient Muslim. But I can hold a knife to your throat and never make you a Christian. And the reason is, once again, this is the work of the Spirit to regenerate um, a heart. Right? This is the inward work of God to do that. By the external call, there's this inward work that we see. Okay. So there's a lot to be said here. I've thrown out quite a few things. I'll pause here for a second, take questions, comments, um, anything that you'd like to throw out there. Give you a second. Uh, Chris? Yes, ma'am. You mentioned something uh, that triggered a thought in my mind. Okay. Um, the fact that salvation is not of ourselves. <laughs> It's all of God. And one thing that I try to tell people, um, and even in my testimony, I changed my testimony to, uh, to say that. Uh, the one thing that I hope I can make an impact, two things in my life is, one, that I can convince people, uh, Christians to witness, and two, that we can stop saying, that I accepted Christ because Christ does it all. So we instead should say that um, the Holy Spirit convicted me of my sins and God gave me the faith and gave me the faith to believe in Jesus and drew me to him. Uh, so this way, the Holy, you know, God gets the credit for it rather than us saying, I accepted Jesus. We would never accept Jesus if it weren't for the Holy Spirit doing that. And two, it sounds almost as though we drummed up our own faith in mm -hmm. when we, every time we say that. To me, it's almost blasphemy to say uh, that uh, I won someone to Christ because we never win anyone to Christ you know, God does all that too. So those two things are two of the things that I hope to change in my lifetime. Yeah. Those would be two great things. Yeah. And, and it, just to kind of piggyback, thank you, Vicki, uh, to piggyback off that. Sometimes if we're not careful, we see people, I think good intentions, but you see people pressuring people to um, make a confession of faith. Right. And once again, we're more after, what, um, a profession of um, having saving faith, whether, whether, rather than just professing saving faith. Um, yeah, so sometimes we can manipulate people's emotions um, if we're not careful in that too. So yeah, that's well said. Anybody else? Once again, I, I, I don't, I tend to agree with Luther. I don't think he's being um, exaggerating here or being hyperbolic. I think this is the core ecclesia and we don't think of it that way. So I thought about even asking you guys that question of the beginning, like, what do you think is the core? What's the, what's the heart of the church? And we've got some great answers. I'm quite certain. I don't know. We would have run to this as the answer. Um, but I think Luther's right on that, right? It is intimately tied to this, to the gospel. Well, if you have a question, please post it. I'm going to keep going. So on the handout, too, um, when we talk about the doctrine of election, we have to talk about the doctrine of called the reprobation as well. Like, what in the world is that? Um, so if think about it this way. This is number four in this handout. If God sovereignly elects some unto salvation, then that necessarily means that not all are elected to salvation. I mean, I think that's kind of a logical inference to be made here, right? So that means, therefore, that some will necessarily perish. And this is, once again, the doctrine of, of reprobation. So if we define that word, reprobation, like what does that mean? Um, I think we maybe could, a good definition to kind of work with would be this, that this is the sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over. And I think that's a good kind of verb here to use, to pass over some persons deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins 
and thereby manifests his justice. So we see that idea of the Passover, right? That God has chosen to save some and not others. It's clear to see that. If you think that that word obviously comes back with the Israelites, right? That's coming out of Egypt, that the, the, the death angel that it's passed over. Um, so does, does hearing that, this doctrine, how, how that kind of strikes you, um, or if you object to that idea, um, do you think this, this idea of rep- reprobation um, simply can't be true, once again, of a loving God? And this is, I oftentimes have heard this objection to it as well. So if you say yes to that, yeah, you, you do struggle with that, then obviously you're not alone. There are a lot of people who struggle with that, right? This is, this is something that many people struggle with, with this doctrine. Um, and yet, the love that God gives us for our fellow human beings and for the love that he commands us to have toward our neighbors would, I think, cause us to, at first, to recoil from this doctrine. That's not uncommon. Um, and that we might um, feel some compulsion to, to not accept this, right? Um, that is unless the scriptures actually teach this. Once again, does the scriptures teach us? That, that's, the, that's the underlying, that's the most important part of this. Is this just something that we've just sort of worked out, theologians have worked out over time, this, this doctrine of reprobation? And yet there, there, is, there are clear grounds that the scriptures teach on this, right? So, for example, um, in Jude chapter 4, uh, he writes that for certain men who were marked out for condemnation long long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're godless men. And they're godless because they deny Jesus Christ. Or Peter, Peter's um, very famous for this, right? This is first Peter chapter two and verse eight. And Peter says that those who, re- about those who reject the gospel, they reject it, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined to do. Or Proverbs 16, this is verse 4, that the Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for the day of disaster, right? So Paul goes on and alludes to this idea of reprobation, once again, in that famous passage of Romans chapter 9. This is 18 through 23, where he appeals to his audience that it's entirely just for God to, quote, make out of the same lump of clay some people for his noble purposes, and some for common use, and that it's entirely just of God to do so. As a matter of fact, he says it's just of God to show his wrath and to make his power known in dealing with them, in dealing with those that he's chosen to be his objects of wrath. Once again, this is a heavy doctrine, right? And I think one thing to kind of keep in mind with this as we as we kind of wrap this up to think think about it as well is that it would be unjust if god did this to innocent people but friends it's very clear in the scriptures and it's very clear experientially in our lives that no one is innocent right we've all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god we've all rebelled there's none righteous paul speaks that once again in Romans 3, and therefore it is entirely justified for God to, to do, what he, do what he wills. So why does he reveal himself to Moses and not Pharaoh, right? Um, why does he choose to do any of this? Well, it's out of his own goodwill and good purpose in that. So uh, if I leave you with this, I leave you with this. Maybe a great study to do, kind of encourage you to think through this, is to look not just at the um, the existence of the doctrine of election in Scripture, uh, but of how it's perceived by the biblical authors themselves, which is kind of interesting, or the authors themselves. And this is kind of an interesting thing to go back and relook through the New Testament. So the authors of Scripture, for example, rejoiced once again in this doctrine. Uh, And they did so because it was a sign of, once again, it was a sign of God's love and his mercy and his grace and his sovereignty. So once again, if I leave you with this, this is why we talk about the doctrine of election. We want to talk about it 
in terms of God's electing love. If he elected us, then he will be faithful, not only um, to be not only author of our faith, but also the finisher of our faith. He'll be the just and he'll be the justifier. Right? So we know that he will be working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his saving purpose. Right? So if, if God has elected some to salvation, and he has, then why do we need to evangelize? I talked to this a few minutes ago, right? Um, why do we need to go tell others of the gospel? God's going to do what he's going to do. What's the, what's the point, right? Well, telling the gospel is the, once again, is the means. And I'm coming back to this point because this is the one I hear probably the most often, right? But telling the gospel is the means that God uses to bring the elect to himself. Again, election does not make evangelism pointless. Election makes evangelism, evangelism hopeful that God will do his work. We, once again, we can't make someone a Christian. That's the work of the Spirit. Vicki said that really well earlier, right? So God commands us to tell others the gospel. That's what we do. And in turn, this brings us to this really important point of this gospel invitation. So if you go back and look at that chain of events, right? For those whom he predestined, he also called. This is an important point of this. So this is a part of this, now on your handout, this gospel invitation that we looked at. So without the gospel, without this gospel invitation, no one uh, would be saved. Right? Paul lays this out in, in Romans chapter 10. He says, how can men believe in the one of whom they have not heard? Or he goes on to tell the Thessalonians that God called them to salvation through the gospel. By the way, Paul uses this really interesting um, analogy when he talks about, when he, he goes through that chain in, in Romans 10, he goes, how will they hear unless they've been, someone's been sent to tell? Um, and essentially, to, to preach this gospel. And then he makes this really interesting comment where he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring this good news. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Why in the world are we talking about somebody's feet? Right? <laughs> Wouldn't he say how beautiful is the mouth of those who bring this good news or how beautiful is the mind of those who people have thought about this and bring this good news? Why do you talk about feet? And Paul goes back, I think, to this idea of, um, uh, this ancient idea of, of these runners, right? I love running. I do this all the time, right? But this idea of, of these runners. So when there was a battle to be fought and a victory or a loss would happen, well, they would send a runner back to the king to tell the news of what's happened. And they would have a station on top of the castle or wherever they would have lookouts. They were waiting for the runner to come back. And oftentimes, they didn't, the runner didn't even have to get back to the home base before that, uh, the spotter of the runner would know what the news was going to be just by the way the runner lifts his feet, just how he's running. Okay? So obviously, if the runner's bringing about bad news, um, the runner's feet is going to be shuffling along. And there's, it's not going to be of the, a priority of the runner to get back in time and tell everybody that we lost, right? That's not good news. That's bad news. Who wants to be the bearer of bad news? And yet if it's, a, if it's someone who's bringing good news, right, and there's this expectancy to get back and report this, that we've won. The battle is over. We've won. I have good news. I have great news to tell you. That you could see it by the way that the runner was holding himself. Um, that the way that the runner was lifting his feet, he's not doing the death shuffle. So I've run a few marathons and there's a point where you see some people and I've been there too. It's called the death shuffle, right? So <laughs> you're barely put, picking your feet up off the ground. Uh, you, you want it to be over. And then there are the people who at the end, they're hitting a personal record. They're very close. They're moving right? Their legs are turning over. And that's what we see here with this analogy Paul uses, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring this good news. Friends, we've got great news, not just this, this ultimate sense, not just of winning a battle, but what Christ has done, what he's done in our lives, what he has done for them if they repent and believe. This is this good news of this gospel that we talked about, right? And yet even within that, there is this idea in this gospel invitation about this kind of two ways to think about the gospel. There's the external gospel, 
the external gospel call that goes out. So you tell this good news, right? And we know from that, not everybody's going to believe. Those are people reject, right? So once again, I can hold a knife to your throat, make you a sufficient Muslim. I can hold a knife to your throat, never make you a Christian, right? I can't make you believe this, right? And yet, we also know there's an internal call to this gospel as well. And that's given by our sovereign God who summons people to himself in such a way that they will respond to saving faith. And by the way, just to tie this to last week, that's the work of the Spirit, right? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So Romans 8.29, Romans 8.29 says that those whom God predestined, once again, he called. And we can see this calling is an effectual call. Matter of fact, it doesn't say this in the text of that golden chain, but it's implied here, right? All those, all of those whom he foreknew, right? If you go back to that, you insert that all in. All those of whom he foreknew, he predestined. All those whom he predestined, he called. And all those he called, he justified. And all those he justified, he will glorify. Right? So this effectual calling is, and once again, an act of God that guarantees a response because, as Paul goes on to say, that those who were called were also, once again, justified and glorified. Friends, God calls men out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter presses this. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. So we are to call everyone to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. But we're also to be aware that it's not that everyone will respond to that gospel. And we know that very clearly, right? This is why Jesus says, many are called, few are chosen. And only God can effectually call us to himself. So think about this passage, John, John chapter 6, verse 44. It's famous words of Jesus, right? Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father has sent me, who sent me draws him, right? And that verb here is really interesting, that word draw or compel. Matter of fact, if it's used, it's used in other places in the New Testament, and the Greek verb here is the fact not just of drawing, but dragging, <laughs> of pulling, right? But notice what Jesus says here, that no one can come to me. No one, the sort of universal negative, no one can do this, right? And he uses the verb can, Right? So um, Troglin, who's a good English teacher, would know the difference between can and may, right? Can and may. We've all had this, we've all had the English teacher do this. You raise your hand and say, teacher, may I go to the restroom? And Troglin will say, well, I'm, or can I go to the restroom? And, and Troglin will say, well, I'm sure you can go to the restroom, but you also may go to the restroom, right? We've all had the same English teacher, right? Notice Jesus here doesn't say, no one may come to me. He says, no one can come to me. But we're just piddling with words here, right? Well, no. May induces this idea of permission. Can is the verb for ability. No one has the ability to come to me uh, unless the Father who sent me draws this. This is this necessary condition right, in this gospel call. So in verse 65, that same chapter, chapter 6, um, Jesus repeats this teaching. So it's one thing if Jesus says something, it's vitally important. But when he says something two times or three times, perk up, right? He says this again, right? No one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. So those of us who are Christians have been called to be such, right? That we have been given ears to hear eyes to see the gospel, right, this gospel light. Um, so we know that we've been chosen and called by God, and if we've believed God, repented of our sins, right? This is inherent to that. Number four, really quick, I know we're going to run out of time, is this issue of regeneration. So once again, this idea of being reborn, right, being born again. So I'm going to quickly work through this just for time's sake. Um, so when we consider this, this is a really important question, right? Um, when man is considered to be regenerated, when is that? Is it before he hears the gospel or after he hears the gospel? 
right? Um, so back to John again, John 1, it says, and I, I don't think John can get any clearer on this, right? It says uh, that Christians are born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of human will, but they're born of God. Jesus says this very clearly with Nicodemus in chapter 3, right? That in order to be able to see the kingdom, even, Nicodemus, you must be reborn, right? You must be regenerated. Once again, that's a work of the Spirit. So we would say this in theology, that regeneration precedes or comes before faith, not the other way around. And yet sometimes we hear that, right? That if we come in faith, then we'll be reborn again. But that's not actually what we're told in, in the scriptures, that regeneration actually comes first. This is the work of the Spirit. And then faith. Once again, I would encourage you to go back and look at that passage with Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, right? He gets into that, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus gives perhaps one of the most crass answers back to Jesus, like, how can that happen? You have to crawl inside my mother's womb again? And Jesus says, how, how can you be the, the, essentially the, the, the spiritual leader of Israel and you not know this? And then he gets into that part about the wind blowing, right? It'll blow, it'll do what, it's, it'll do what he wants, do what it wills. So this, I think, is a really important part of, of the understanding of that, that regeneration, being born again, Jesus says, is, pre, is before the fact of even it precedes even faith, right? Um, a good place to look is the book of James, which some people bring up, right? Um, they try to even pitting, even to pit sometimes the book of James against what Paul is writing as well. But what James is saying here in, that, in his book is that um, justification, once again, is by faith alone. This is a famous statement by Luther, but not by faith that is alone. So the, that the important thing here is that genuine regeneration always produces fruit. So you go back to, from last week and look at the fruit of the Spirit. It always produces this fruit. Um, and the fruit of that regeneration must manifest itself, right? We see that. So that faith does not come before or precede regeneration, but actually regeneration precedes faith. Um, number seven, really quick, this issue of conversion, which is faith and repentance. So those two sides of the same coin, faith and repentance, right? So conversion is this idea of faith and repentance. And sometimes we hear only, um, we hear only the fact that, well, if you um, believe, right, you'll be saved, which is true, right? But, but also in connection to that of believing and repenting, so faith and repentance, these are two sides of the same coin in that. And so in saving faith, sometimes we refer to this idea of like, what is saving faith? What does it mean to be saved? Or what is saving faith in conversion? Um, and saving faith laid out by the reformers is actually really helpful. They define saving faith this way. It's really quick. That saving faith has three parts to it. It's knowledge of something. It's approval, assent to something. And then it's personal trust. Like if I brought Jesus into the room, if we were all in the same room, keeping six feet apart. But if we're all in the same room together and I brought Jesus into the room and I said, if you've never met Jesus before, and I pointed to Jesus and I said, this is Jesus. This is, this is the Christ. Well, that's knowledge. Now, we have to know that if you've never met him before, but that doesn't save us. So then if I said to you, well, he's the son of God, do you believe that? And if everybody said, yeah, we all agree to that, right? We give approval. Does that save us? Well, no. According to James, right, even the demons believe and approve that Jesus is the son of God. That doesn't save us. So what saves us? What is this third part of saving faith? Well, it's the trusting part. It's this personal trust and reliance upon Jesus of not just who he is, but what he's done on our behalf as well. Right? So we need knowledge and we need the ascent. Um, but that doesn't save us ultimately. What saves us is this personal trust, right? This is the means of or conversion. This is the means of conversion, right? So faith but then also repentance as well, which is the second element of conversion. Uh, and repentance simply means turning from our sins and turning to Christ, right? Agreeing with God over our sins 
and turning from them, right? Having sorrow, genuine biblical sorrow over our sin. By the way, Paul warns us, right, that we can feel bad over our sin and not be repentant. So this is genuine sorrow. We turn from our sin and we turn to Christ as well. All right, last one. Once again, I'm zipping through because we're almost out of time. We are out of time, but this last one on the handout is justification. Um, Luther said this one is this the doctrine of justification, which I cannot even begin to touch on any measure of goodness. Um, the doctrine of justification is the article upon which the church stands or falls. <laughs> All right. So it's this article, he says, that you don't have a church without this doctrine of justification by faith alone. So justification is the declaration, the declaring of you, a sinner, to be righteous. And if you think about it, if regeneration is the act of a surgeon to give us a new heart, then justification, is comparable to this analogy, is the work of a judge who's defining us um, that we are now righteous. Right? And Luther says that we are at the same time just and sinner. Right? That we still come back to our sin, and yet we are we are righteous. So how can we be both? Right? Well, there's this wonderful um, doctrine within the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And it's this, that in conversion, um, sometimes we refer to this as imputation or double imputation. So these are just fancy words, I know, but they're beautiful in, in understanding. And imputation is is this idea of how God sees us as righteous. Uh, Imputation is this, is where that God takes our sin and he puts it on his perfect son. So he imputes our sin to Jesus. And yet he does not leave us there. In turn, it's called a double imputation. In turn, he takes the righteousness of Christ and imputes it or imparts it to us. And so someday when we die, if we have repented and believed and we're trusting in the work of Christ, and when we stand before him, he, thank God, will not see my sin. And believe me, I have more than my share of it. But he'll see the righteousness of Christ. And scripture is really clear on this, right? So I, I leave you with this last part of Galatians chapter 2, where Paul writes that a man is not justified by obeying the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. So faith is this gift of God. We don't have the ability to attain it or exercise it on our own. Left to ourselves, we won't produce this faith. Uh, We haven't earned it. We can't merit this faith. Um, And therefore, because of that, we conclude that we are justified by God's grace alone through faith alone. This is why the doctrine of justification by faith alone is really at the very heart of it. Doctrine of justification by Christ alone. It's his work. It's what he's done on our behalf. So this is this idea of double imputation that we look at. Friends, we talk about this in the means of being a Protestant. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that word before, but inherent to that word Protestant is the word protest. Do you know what you're protesting? (laughs) Because this is at the heart of the Reformation, right? And at at the heart of that is the gospel. As Calvin says, this doctrine is the hinge upon which the gospel door swings, this doctrine of justification. So I know I haven't done any kind of service to that, but I would encourage you to uh, push you to some of those resources that we've looked at as well. Um, I think we're almost out of time. So Colton writes, have you ever, uh, if you've ever had a hard time knowing if your repentance and faith are real, like we probably all do sometimes? Remember that your membership in our church means that we, as the people of God, are affirming your faith and repentance as genuine. That's absolutely right. So let other people point out evidences of God's grace in your life when you can't see them. Yeah, very well said. It's absolutely true, right? Um, 
that we need one another in that. And this is one of the things of what church membership uh, can do in that. <laughs> I'm okay on the bathroom. Maybe afterwards, they're okay. <laughs> Friends, I want to give you some time to, to prepare for uh, Brad's sermon. Anything else you'd like to ask? I've thrown a lot at you. I know that Colton and I, I'm sure I'm speaking for him on this, but I, I feel safe in that. We throw a lot at you. There's a ton that's packed into this. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get through all this. Just like one of these things we could spend weeks on, um, the doctrine of justification. Oh my goodness. Um, Chris, another. Uh, go ahead. A.W. Pink's books are really good on this too. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yes. So let me encourage you, look at those, uh, look at those resources. Um, super helpful. Um, once again, I would encourage you, if you're really struggling with like the doctrine of justification by faith alone, sort of a historical overview, Are We Together? It's a really great resource, super thin. It won't take you a couple of days, maybe even that a day uh, to read. That would be, I think, a really helpful start to look at what we mean by that. What does it mean to be a Protestant? In that sense? Two more good books are um, written by my dear uh, spiritual mentor of 60 years, uh, Curtis Thomas, um, Five Points of Calvinism, and uh, also Interpretive Outline of Romans. Okay. All right. All right. Well, friends, let me pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. You're joining me today. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness and uh, your kindness this day. Lord, these are heavy doctrines, but um, Lord, as a reminder from your word that we're to rest in them, or that we're to find hope and peace and comfort in them and not strife and anxiety. Lord, that your word will do what it says it will do. It will go out and will accomplish it. And we can't control that. That's the work of the Spirit. And yet we are thankful and grateful that you've, been, you've given us the means of which to share in this, to tell this good news. So, Father, I pray that if nothing else, that we would be emboldened to share this gospel, this good news with other people, um, and that we would, we would see the work of the Spirit uh, and rejoice in that. And where we pray these things and we ask them in the name of Christ. Amen.